So in this healthcare game, many eventually realize that you can create the most innovative and swishiest piece of technology, but without clinical acceptance of a piece of healthcare innovation, it's really all a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? There's plenty of examples of innovative solutions that get created in healthcare with all good intentions, but in the end, they get in the way of quality patient care. So how do you bring together the worlds of innovative technology, business acumen, and clinical subject matter expertise to actually move the needle in healthcare with technology? How do you engage all the stakeholders, patients, clinicians, the C-suite, and create a solution that everyone accepts and will actually use? And what problems should we even be trying to solve with healthcare innovations? Well, my guest today is Erkan Hassan, and he's been grappling with these questions for a while, and he's helping healthcare innovators create high-quality solutions that get adopted and solve real problems. Let's get stuck into it, shall we? Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Erkan Hassan. He's got 19 years of bedside clinical experience and 20 years experience designing and implementing innovative technologies within integrated health delivery systems to deliver quantified patient-centered clinical and financial outcomes. Hey, Erkan, how are you? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you and actually record some of the conversations that we've had to this point. Because <laughs> so far we've had lots of good musings and discussions about innovation and healthcare and technology. But it's a great opportunity to have you on the show and start to unpack it all. So thank you for joining. My pleasure. So for those that aren't familiar and help us set the scene, give us some context. Tell us a bit more about you and your background, please, sir. Sure. Well, my formal trainings as a PharmD, a doctor of pharmacy degree, I started my career, like you said, I spent the first 19 years as clinical and faculty positions at various university and academic health systems across the U.S., really working in the ICU at the bedside with the physicians, nurses, the whole team to really improve and optimize the drug delivery for those really critically ill patients. I had several leadership positions within the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I was the 12th pharmacist to be inducted as a fellow into the American College of Critical Care Medicine. And then around 1999, 2000, I met these two intensivists who had this crazy idea of doing telemedicine for critical care. And back in 1999, 2000, most people couldn't even spell telemedicine, let alone (laughs) know what it was. Uh, Long Mm. story short, I became employee number 17 at the first startup company to build, develop, and grow the U.S. tele-ICU system. We grew it from nothing up to 500 hospitals, 7,000 adult ICU beds. We had about anywhere between a quarter million to 300,000 patients go through one of our beds every year. And what our clients were telling us is that one to two patients per week. So one to two patients times 52 weeks times 700 ICUs were walking out alive who previously died before they had our system. Wow. Pretty proud of them. I'm on two patents for proactive patient 
deterioration algorithm. I'm the author of 31 peer review publications, seven book chapters. And like you said, you know, I help identify clinical challenges using evidence-based data. My fire in the belly, my passion is I want to develop and implement solutions that help the patient in the bed. That's my fire in the belly. Mm, nice one. That's such a broad experience in such a focused area. So we can really dig into some of these points here. And this consistent theme around innovation in healthcare and creating those solutions to have a meaningful impact on patients. So I'm going to guess over your time, you've seen that evolution of innovation in healthcare. And so reflecting on it, what do you think makes healthcare innovation successful? How do you start to unpack that kind of stuff? Good question. I think there's two big buckets for that. And what I've seen in my experience working with healthcare innovators, whether they be within the health system or uh, startup entrepreneurs coming up with innovative products and solutions, I just want to focus on two big areas. The first advice uh, for anyone doing this is healthcare is very unique. It's not like the automotive industry. It's not like fast food restaurants. It's very unique. So there are different factors to consider. And what I see a lot of healthcare innovators doing is they're more focused on launching their product. And my advice is don't focus on launching your product, focus on making it a commercial success, which is two completely different things, right? Once you launch it, that's not the end of it. In healthcare, you can't just launch and walk away. We'll talk more about that later, but it's really, how do we really make this a commercial success? And I see a lot of healthcare innovators who come up, many of them have solutions looking for a problem rather than the other way around. And what you really want to do is you need to ask yourself, what problem am I solving? So you need to solve a problem and that then leads you down the path of, do you have a product or is it better for you to have a solution? And so in healthcare, I think it's better to have a solution rather than a product. Your widget is part of the solution and it's not the solution. The other big area is healthcare is different because clinical evidence and clinical validation is a critical factor unique in the healthcare arena. What I mean by that is most recently over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of RPMs, remote patient monitoring devices come out and you can pull up web pages that say, we decrease readmissions, we decrease ED visits, we better control hemoglobin A1C, we, et cetera, et cetera. There needs to be clinical validation that your widget actually does what you say it does. And oftentimes that is missing. And I think that is critical within the healthcare innovation area. Your pilot needs to demonstrate that it does what you say it does. Now, when I say that, a lot of people get the mental image especially within healthcare, that they need a 10,000 patient randomized control trial that's going to take two, five years to do. That's not the point. We don't have the luxury for that. In this fast-paced innovation of healthcare, that's not the case. What we need to do is do it smart and we need to do it quick to demonstrate that what we built actually does what we say it does. And when you're going out for early adopters, there's no early adopter that's going to take your innovation. The first question they're going to ask you is, show me your data. And David Nash, the former dean of the School of Population Health at Thomas Jefferson University, has this great quote. I love it. I give him credit for it, but I steal it all the time. It's no outcome, no income. Mm. 
You have to show the yeah. outcome in order for people to uptake your innovation and to use it. Now, that's a double-edged sword because what you have to avoid is pilot purgatory. One of the things that'll kill innovation is you ending up in pilot purgatory. And we'll do this pilot, we'll do that pilot. And you have to basically ask the specific question, develop it, get it out there. And what I like to do is from the time we go live of collecting data, there's a 90 day collection period, maybe 120 day collection period. And at the end of 90 to 120 days, you should be able to have the data that says it does what we want it to do, or it does not. It's a go, no go decision. And if it doesn't do what you said, go back to the drawing board, you got to redo it. But if it does, then you're ready to move on. Yeah. Geez, a lot of good one-liners there, the pilot purgatory and the uh, no outcome, no income. And we'll um, no doubt be following that trend and stealing those for future episodes as well. So thank you for that. But just back to the one of the, the first point around, and it ties into some of the what, what you talked about with clinical validation too, but the difference between a product and a solution that solves problems. And it's one thing to find a clinical problem to solve, but then going back to it being a business and actually commercializing. And I guess that's why people go about creating products and launching things in the first place is because it's a business and you need to make money. So finding that balance between you could be solving the best clinical problem, but in the end, if there's no business model around it, or if there's a bad business model around it, it's kind of, you don't get anything out of it. So how do you find that balance between solving good clinical problems and actually having a good kind of commercial model around it? You know, my experience is, and that's a good question, but my experience is a lot of the healthcare innovators that have experienced a problem either in their own life or in their family and have seen a problem within healthcare. Mm. Transferring my data, right? If you're my doctor and you want my data that's over my other doctor and I can't get that to you, that's a problem. How do I solve that problem? If I need to identify a very specific infection in you, how do I do that and how do I solve that problem? And so the example would be, I can come up with a widget that's going to measure your hemoglobin A1C. A lot of RPM devices do that. But how does that really impact and drive a solution to decrease ED visits, get better quality of light for the patient? And what I submit to you is to date, there is very little in the RPM arena that is demonstrably shown to move the needle on clinical outcomes. We can measure pressure, we can measure heart rate, you know, we can do EKGs at home, we can measure glucoses, but where's the data that says we've actually moved the needle? So we have products, do we have a solution for improving the outcome of these patients? Mm -hmm. And then that's where people go to what you were saying before in that second point around getting the clinical validation and people think, oh, well, let's launch that two to five year randomized control trial. So we get all the data and get lots of patients involved and we become a, a clinical trial business for the next five, 10 years, rather than actually creating solutions. You're saying it doesn't need to be like that. You can get your early adopters and get that data and demonstrate it. Like you mentioned as well, that often the creators of these solutions, the founders, they're probably solving problems that they have encountered themselves and they they identified in that instance. But then it's it sounds like finding those few early adopters and those clinics that will actually fly the flag for you. Is that the next step? You know, the way I like to do it, Pete, is find a partner that in a health system, healthcare, private practice, if it were, outpatient environment, that has the same problem that your solution is trying to solve. 
And my approach is to say, look, we think we have something here. I want to partner with you to help co-develop it, to help pilot it, to determine does it really work or does it not work? And so it's not going in saying, here it is, it's all done. Just implement this and check the checkboxes. It's let's develop this because the worst thing that will happen is if you start your pilot in the first couple of pages, don't do well, people are going to hate that. But if it goes well and you really did build it right and you can risk stratify a patient population, you can identify which patients really need your care at the right time then that becomes your biggest cheerleader. The first two questions you're going to get when you go out to health systems is show me the data and who's already using it. Yeah, definitely. That would be the, in trying to sell a newer solution, it's fantastic. I want to be innovative and I want to be using the most cutting edge solution, but I need to see other people who've used it first. <laughs> so. Well, and you know, if you want to do a two to five year randomized control trial, that's great. I'm not saying don't do that. What I'm saying is you're walking the balance between revenue to fund your business to exist in five years versus what is the amount of clinical data that I really need, clinical validation that I really need in order to start getting revenue in. Yeah. No, and I like that too, because we've touched on this before on the show where often the problems to be solved aren't technology problems in healthcare. You touched on it before around, you know, a lot of remote patient monitoring devices capture data. Just because they capture data, that doesn't mean that that's clinical outcomes that they're capturing. It's just information. It's then utilizing that and then capturing data on demonstrating the clinical effectiveness of it. So it sounds like we're getting to like, you know, what would then create a, I guess let's call it a high quality health technology solution. In your mind, what would you say constitutes a high quality solution in healthcare? Well, I think that's a great segue from your last point, which is, you know, we have these things that generate data and success, in my opinion, does not depend simply by installing technology and flipping the switch and turning it on. That's not what's going to do it. And just because you've been successful at one site does not automatically transfer to another site. And so I think once you've got the clinical validation, the next thing that you have to do, in my opinion, is show health systems, hospitals, private practitioners, whomever it may be, patients, how it integrates into workflow. Now, there are healthcare invaders. I I was consulting with somebody a few years ago. We did the clinical validation piece. And I'm like, okay, now you need to show how to integrate into workflow. And their response was, We're just going to let the hospital figure it out for themselves. Like that's a big mistake because you may get into some hospitals, health systems, et cetera. You will make some sales, but if you're dependent on them to figure out how to integrate it into their workflow, it will not happen. They're busy and it's not because they're lazy. It's not because your product's not good. It's because they don't have the time to do it. That's not their job. It's your job to show them how to do that. It's your job to integrate, develop the workflow and demonstrate how it makes the clinician's life better. Mm. Because if you cannot make the clinician's life better, you really need to ask yourself, should I even be in business? If I'm not making their life better, what value is this innovation? And so it's not, we need to show them that, not let them figure it out for themselves. Yes. Each place is going to be a little bit different. The workflow is going to be a little bit different. The main backbone, I think, uh, what I submit is probably the same, 
but it's going to be tweaked a little bit. And I think that success depends on culture, people, and process change. That's what success depends on, not flipping the switch on your widget. Yeah. When you think more broadly in innovation and healthcare, there's more and more, whether it's the big tech end of town or it's the more and more VCs or, you know, different avenues of funding, they're not necessarily got a great deal of experience in healthcare, but might have experience in other technologies and and industries where a successful organization is something where you can implement and put it kind of a bit more hands-off or try and standardize a workflow and say, here it is, you know, we've demonstrated that it's effective. This is the one that you need to use. But it sounds like once you've got that clinical validation, which is, you know, very patient-centric of saying, hey, we're saving lives or improving health outcomes, it's then, well, jumping into a different vehicle and saying, well, for the clinicians that are using it on a day-to-day, this is how you actually kind of incorporate in your into your job now. Exactly. You have to show them how it integrates and it makes their life better. That's yeah. what, if you wait for them to do it, it will sit on a shelf. And in a year or two, the administration is going to say, why are we paying for this? It's yeah. been sitting are you using it? They're going to say, no, we haven't used it. You're out. Mm, mm. And so then thinking more about the reason why you're creating innovative solutions in healthcare is to drive better patient outcomes that often inspires and motivates plenty of people to ride that long road, that tough slog of healthcare innovation. And and technology obviously plays a, a very big part in that. How do you describe the role of technology in improving patient outcomes in healthcare? Oh, boy. We could go in a number of directions on that Good. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Since we're talking health tech, let's talk more along the telemedicine avenue. You know, I think telemedicine, it's not going away. And it's become entrenched in a number of solutions. And I think telemedicine, which in my opinion is different than telehealth, people use those terms interchangeably and I don't think they are, but in any event, you know, telemedicine is one tool. And I think how we get patient-centered outcomes is combining that one tool with other tools to solve problems. And part of the problems are there's data scattered all over the place. And a clinician has to go look in here for a couple of things and over there for a couple of other things and a third place for other things. We need a way to bring all that together. Having said that, I do believe we look forward. I think the clinician of tomorrow is going to need an increasing degree of digital skills that will continue to grow. So, you know, I think in order to make this telemedicine thing work, I think we need to move from a, in the past and with the pandemic, we've sort of had a one size fits all type of approach to telemedicine. And I think what we're seeing is we're going to move away from that. And I think it has to move to specific populations. And if you look at the uptake of telemedicine with COVID, there was a huge surge in the U.S. It went up to about, it was like less than 1% use of telemedicine. It went up to about 50%. And now it's really dipped back down and it hovers around 10, 11%. It was, it's even lower. It used to be around 12, 15% telemedicine claims, which is different, but it's now around 10, 11%. So I think what's going to happen is we need to better define the specific population. It's not going to be one size fits all. It's changing and it's changing even as we're looking at it. 
We need to find the specific populations that will benefit the most. And if you look at, in the U.S., telemedicine claims that have been submitted to insurers to pay for, far and away, the number one area is psychiatry, double the next closest one. And so I think as we try to figure this out and where do we end up in the future with this, I think we're going to see a difference in use of telemedicine between the specialties where some of the more cognitive specialties, psychiatry, family medicine, internal medicine, will use more telemedicine rather than the procedural specialties like orthopedics, cardiology, surgery, those types of things where it's more procedure focused rather than not. So I think that's going to happen. And I think the other thing that we need to do to really improve outcomes, and I know this is a big thing in Australia because I've had several conversations, there is improved access to care, especially in the rural areas. And I think there are two big problems with that. Number one is the availability of broadband and just the availability to do telemedicine in those rural areas. But then also, secondly, where there's a scarcity of specialists in those remote areas. And I think that needs to be addressed as well. Those are the terms, and and I know, especially in Australia, it's very expensive to transport a patient. Sometimes you have to fly them in to get healthcare, which is expensive. The family has to travel. It's not good for the patient. It's not good for the family. And then finally, I think we need to be creative in coming up with alternative payment methods. So if you think about it, telemedicine is perfect for -for fee-for-service models, Mm. right? That's what happened with COVID. We switched from in-person visits and had parity with fee-for-service for for virtual visits versus inpatient visits. Because we cut down on the inpatient visits, we went up on the virtual visits. The question becomes, can we make it work in value-based care? And I think the answer is yes, we can make it work in a value-based care model. For those that aren't familiar with fee-for-service and value-based care, we've touched on a little bit on the show, but then why do you think that telemedicine would be difficult in a value-based care model? That gets to how do you use telemedicine? So when the pandemic hit, we substituted televisits for in-person visits to minimize exposure to patients, minimize exposure to healthcare providers. And as that has weighed, you know, obviously with all the surges, we're going back and forth with this. But so what happened in the U.S. is we came up, the government, the insurers said, we will pay at parity for telemedicine visits just like offices. And this is just my opinion. But one of the reasons that telemedicine has not taken off is because two reasons. One is reimbursement for telemedicine. And two is the concern by the payers over telemedicine fraud, which as we've seen over the pandemic, has been skyrocketing. So the telemedicine value-based of, can I just do telemedicine and get paid on a capitated basis to improve my care and use telemedicine as, remember, it's a tool. So can I use it as a tool to improve my outcomes of patients? There was actually a study last year that showed that the number of telemedicine visits, if you look at The Medicare, which is the largest insurer in the U.S., Medicare Advantage plans, which is a capitated plan, it's a value-based care plan, they had more telehealth visits with those patients over 
I think a 10 month period over 2020, more visits via telehealth than fee for service patients. And it was dependent on practice size. If you had four or more practitioners in your primary care, this is primary care outpatient, right? If you had four or more practitioners, that's where you saw the benefit and you saw the takeoff of using telemedicine in value-based care versus small private practices. It's because they've got the ability to continue those conversations because they know it's covered under the capitated model. Like what? Well, I think think the question you have to ask is, and this is one of the things we got to figure out with telemedicine. And one of the things that we're really grappling with now is what's the ideal balance between virtual visits and inpatient visits. Now, when COVID first hit, I had a lot of physicians call me and say, I need you to just tell me what platform to pick. And I'm like, that is completely the wrong question you should be asking me. Mm. The question you should be asking me is help me quickly develop a telehealth strategy of how I'm going to do this. That's the question you should be asking. Then as we went into the pandemic and telehealth was there and we were looking at it again, and as things started to get a little bit better, there were two pockets of providers. One was, I can't wait to get rid of this telemedicine crap and go back to in-person visits. And the other bucket was, this will be a permanent part of my practice from now on. And I think the difference, and again, this is my bias, I don't have any data to prove this, but the difference is the ones that didn't want, that couldn't wait to get rid of telemedicine are the ones that went into it with, just tell me what platform to buy versus the ones that had a plan. So now as we're moving forward, one of the questions we have to address is what is appropriate virtual visits versus in-person visits? And we don't know the answer to that. We do know that in 2020, the live video visits, most of the visits were due to medical emergencies. In 2021, 32% of the video visits was for minor illnesses versus in 2020, 33% of the video visits, which was the largest segment, was for medical emergencies. So the way it's being used is shifting and changing. People are used to it. People are going to continue to use it. Yeah. No, I like that point around having a strategy around it, but also to your point that there's a lot of thinking that can be done about not just the specialties where telemedicine and telehealth is most applicable to, but also at what steps of the patient journey they're used, even for someone that's performing procedures, potentially some follow-up conversations or consultations can be performed, but obviously procedures will need to be done in person, that kind of stuff. So approaching it in a strategic way, thinking about what's the best tool and method to engage with a patient is something that I imagine a lot of clinicians should be thinking about now. Um, let's start to close out the conversation because I feel like we could talk for another couple of hours, but we won't subject people to that. But I wanted to ask you a question, like what are the challenges we need to worry about moving forward in this kind of new healthcare world? What keeps you up at night? Well, you know, I think the biggest challenge is patient and provider expectation. Mm. And what I mean by that is we have to improve data flow and data integration. We've got all these technologies and we are having a rapid proliferation of all these technologies. They don't talk to each other. We've got all these various devices and it's confusing to patients. It's confusing to providers. It's confusing to payers. 
I envision that the hospital room of the future will be your bedroom. Mm. Just imagine that you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth. And as you're brushing your teeth, your toothbrush can take your temperature. Imagine you're looking in the mirror and the mirror has optics that through pupillary measurement can measure your heart rate and your blood pressure. Imagine you're taking your shower and as you take your shower, the shower can determine your weight. If that's changed, it can determine if there's a localized infection anywhere, a wide variety of things. And mm. when you get on the scale in your bathroom, all this data will be sent to your provider. Mm. Now that leads to a whole other thing of asynchronous versus synchronous data going to providers. We're not even going to talk about that. Let's go back to current day today reality, which is telemedicine is here to stay. I don't think it's going to go away. However, patients, in my opinion, expect a different experience virtually than in person. And I don't think providers are hearing that message. And so what do patients want? What patients want, they want you to listen carefully. They want you as the provider to take care of their problem in one visit. They don't want telehealth visits to be additive to in-person visits. They want it to be substitutive for in-person visits, especially because each time there's going to be a deductible on their insurance. They're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. And what they want is they want to virtually build interpersonal relationships, which means for the provider, somehow that provider has to convey empathy over a hardwire. So they're expecting a different experience virtually than in person. You know, you have to spend enough time to solve their problem on one visit. You have to give them quality care and you've got to complete all their medical concerns. But it also has to be done where the internet doesn't go out. Your video doesn't short out. That it does work. You know it works. The appointments are set. They know what buttons to click in order to get it to work. They want that experience. So it's a different experience virtually than in person. And the big chunk of that is that empathy. How do you convey empathy over a video chat? Yeah, I'm totally with you on that one. Not just, you know, you think about, again, every other area outside of healthcare, patient expectations, depending on the demographic that you're dealing with. But there are other industries that have certainly done this, not even in a real-time sense where, you know, you're able to capture empathy and engage with people over when you're not physically in person. Companies and organizations and platforms are able to do it asynchronously where people feel a bond with a a product or a person or a thing or and soon a virtual avatar. So the excuse, I guess, to say, well, it's too hard to capture emotion and empathy and build rapport online. I feel like that's a bit of a cop-out and it's not something that's going to be sustainable because expectations will only continue to grow that this is an element, this is how we're, we're going to need to do things. So I'm going to leave that thought with all of us about how we incorporate all of that into our consultations on the day today. But, Erkan, look, I'm really appreciative of the time that you've taken to have this conversation. We'll put some notes in the show notes of this episode for people to check out and also some links for people to connect with you if they want to. I'm sure we'll have to do a follow-up conversation at some point this year or next. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry.
Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.